0: connections cast brought to you by tdn australia and new zealand Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to TDN AusNZ's Connections Cast, long-form conversations with leading thoroughbred industry figures presented by Newgate, raising top-class resources. My guest today is not the Scottish bred half brother to the loudmouth agent from Entourage, but he's known a few of that stamp in four decades at the cutting edge of world bloodstock and racing. The racing manager for an organization that has raced a British Horse of the Year, a US Horse of the Year, and two Australian Horses of the Year, he's long been a fixture at carnivals and sales on both sides of the equator. Angus Gold, welcome to the podcast. It has been an intense few years for you. Tell me though, What has been the most satisfying moment in the period since His Highness began a gradual downsizing of the operation in the Southern Hemisphere through the pandemic, his tragic passing to where we sit today?
1: Good morning, Gus. Interesting question. Obviously, from the moment Sheikh Hamdan decided to downsize in Australia, or in the end to uh, disperse, which was obviously a huge sadness in my personal life as I thoroughly enjoyed my involvement in Australia. So from that moment, obviously, we had to make sure we achieved the best possible results in the sale ring. And then, as you say, sadly, he died last March. So everything was a little bit up in the air for a few months. While we were trying to sort out sort of the way forward and the family were deciding how they wanted to take things on. So I suppose probably the answer to your question, the greatest satisfaction, that was just having a good year on the track last year mm. in a way, just to showcase that his legacy was set to continue and, and uh, that everything he'd set up was, was paying off. We had a very good year the year before when sadly uh, COVID had struck and he wasn't able to get here to enjoy it. Then he became ill and then obviously subsequently died. So very sadly, the last two years, which have been certainly two of the the most successful, if not the most successful of all since I've been around, uh, he wasn't able to enjoy them. But it was just good to see the operation carrying on and and, uh, producing good results through the last two
0: years. So you rate the last 24 months right up there with 89, 90, 94, 2006, all of those great years where you were firing on all cylinders. It's, it's right up there, is it? Well, Gus, as you know,
1: the passage of time plays tricks with one's memory. Uh, I certainly, 89 and 90 felt like a golden era. But I was young then, and you, you sort of start to take things for it for granted and yeah. think that this is the way it's always going to be. And, and you learn, obviously, short, sharp lessons in life that that's not the case. So those were two fantastic years from memory. Um, but certainly the year before last, 2020, uh was an extraordinary year for us on the track, suddenly. And last year, as I say, it wasn't as good, but it but obviously with the horse like Baid coming along. Mm. Um uh you know, that sort of topped it off. But it would be silly of me to say they were better than the years of Nashua and Deja or Selsadville. And
0: well, were, it's always interesting right to hear from from the inside, because I think from the outside looking in, you wonder whether it's the red Volkswagen effect. You know, you buy a red Volkswagen and suddenly that's all you see on the road driving around you. And with everything that was going around in, in the Shadwell <laughs> orbit, it seemed like every day there was a, the blue with the white epaulets popping up, either in Europe or with Malathart in the US as well. But I, you, you don't know whether that's just because it's in the front of your mind. So you notice it more. You obviously being inside and going through a lot of this stuff yourself. The fact that the racetrack success is is a major satisfaction, it must, uh, must be terrific.
1: Yeah, I think what was amazing, Gus, was in 2020, when none of us could go racing because of the pandemic and we were sitting at home, but normally you have one or two good horses. You know, we suddenly had six winners at Royal Ascot, which was yeah. unparalleled. We've never done that before. <clears throat> and that then carried on. To Goodwood, to York, it it felt that to Newmarket July meeting, sort of every carnival, we had three or four or five winners. That's what made that so special that it was just sort of kept rolling, as you say, through the year, rather than just relying on one good horse or something.
0: You were 26 when you joined the Shadwell operation, which leads me to a two-prong question, prong one. Did you have any idea what you were getting into? And prong two, would a 26-year-old Angus Gold type of person ever be handed the reins to such an operation Were it 2022 instead of the mid-80s?
1: Very easy answer to the first part. Not a clue what I was getting myself <laughs> into. And much more important, I'm sure, poor Sheikh Hamdan didn't either. Uh, Gus, it was, you know, it was just in the right place at the right time. I, just correct you quietly, I was just, I was 27 Actually, oh, but right. that's splitting hairs but um, uh, no, I, I was in the right place at the right time um, Sheikh Mohammed had, he built up his operation and his manager was Anthony Stroud who was a friend of mine and Sheikh Mohammed said to him they wanted to find somebody for Sheikh Hamdan, his brother's operation, racing operation he had a stud manager in England called Bobby Dolby and a stud manager in Ireland called Hubie de Berg and uh, up till that point they had sort of run the racing as well but the studs were getting bigger and they didn't have time to do so so they were also tasked with the idea of coming up with somebody and i guess they'd asked around and somebody else put my name up to them as well so i got interviewed by Hubie de berg and bobby dolby and i remember at the end of the interview Hubie de berg saying to me have you any questions uh and i said well it's not so much a question, more just an observation. I'm not convinced that I have enough experience for a job of this size. And he gave me some very good advice, very it sounds very simple. And he was, he said, look, you just you don't have to be the best, you've just got to be honest and work hard. Yeah. And I remember thinking, Well, I think I can do those two. So um if that's the case, we'll you know, I'd I'd be interested and then they asked me up for an interview to come and see Sheikh Hamdan. And I went to dinner at Dallon Hall Stud with Sheikh Hamdan. And I walked in there and we shook hands and he said, I hear you're coming to help me with my horses. So uh, that that was it. You know, there was nothing clever about it. I was just very lucky to be there at the right time. And look, it, that tells you anybody can get a job like that if, if the circumstances are right. You know, I remember saying to my mother that i have been offered this job and, and it was sort of early days she knew nothing about racing and she said who are these people and I said oh well they're sort of newcomers to racing mum over the last few years and look looked like they're going to be heavily involved and she said well I suppose it would be good experience for a couple of years for you. So uh, 36 late, years later we're still, still going luckily.
0: Yeah your definition of a couple of years is slightly different to, to your mum's. You reference your mum. You, You've often said that you didn't come from a particularly horsey background, but in order to seek out Ian Balding and learn to ride by riding out on his horses, you must have had an interest in the sport. What was your eureka moment for the sport of Kings?
1: I just remember, Gus, just loving it. I was a mad keen footballer when I was young and um, loved all sports and played a lot at at, uh, sort of prep school up to the age of 13. Then I went to public school and I was. A bit small and weedy, and I couldn't get onto a team of anything. And then I remember watching racing and always enjoyed the horses, obviously, and um, just watching racing all the way through my teens and and was mad about it. And if I'd had the ability and been later, I would love to have ridden professionally. Um, I soon realized that I, I, I won my first point of point and thought I was the younger brother of John Frankham, who was then the young the champion jump jockey. I soon learned, for the next couple of years, that that wasn't the case. So, uh, luckily, I managed to give that up. Um, but you know, it was just purely following it, watching it, and and from then on, I went to Ian Balding and was completely hooked from that moment.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm but a leading stallion nursery. In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire Better Than Ready, Vinery Studs' Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Jubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State, and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and golden slipper winner, Stay Inside. Newgate, raising and consigning top-class future stallions. So you did T and you you undertook the famous the English National Stud course, and that was when Eng- the English National Stud had some serious horsepower in residence. A couple of derby winners in Mill Reef and Grundy, if my timing is is right. Uh, That's right. But you actually veered back into, I'm doing air quotes for our listeners here, uh, the real world for a little while and spent four years in the city doing the insurance thing. A, why? And B, do you think that has helped long term or in, in your equine pursuits? The reason why, uh, I went to the
1: National Start, as you say. I was sent there by... A, A man called Colonel Hastings, who was the chairman of the BBA, the British Bloodstock Agency. He was a sort of friend of my father's from where we grew up in Hampshire. And uh, he had said he would organise for me to go to America and on to Australia. And unfortunately for him, he got sick and subsequently died. So that obviously didn't come off, Um, and I just remember my parents at that stage saying, look, maybe you should get a proper job and try and do something normal. tried a year's farming, uh, had a wonderful time, but obviously realised that we didn't have a farm, so that was going to be a harder career to pursue. Uh, And I ended up, um, I just thought I was by then 19, I think. And all my friends were in London, sort of starting out on their various careers. And I thought it'd be more fun to spend time in London. So I managed to get a job with an underwriting agency in Lloyds, which was a fantastic job. And I should certainly have stayed. I'm sure I'd have made considerably more money, but uh, I just decided it wasn't for me. And I wanted to get back to the the horse world if I possibly could. but did it do me good? I think it was a fantastic thing to do, Gus, for many reasons. One of which is that, as you know very well, a lot of us in, in our business, you tend to get a bit wrapped up in what you're doing. And it it can be a seven-day-a-week, 365-days-a-year job. And we tend not to look into the outside world. And it taught me that there's a big, wide world out there, a lot of people who have no interest in racing. I've still got a lot of friends who I met in one of my city days and had nothing to do with racing and still don't. And uh, I, don't, I don't think it you know, it just gives you a better outlook on life, possibly. It's a very hard one because obviously people want to get on the ladder, get a foot on the ladder early, get some experience. So I can't say to people, you should go off and do something else. But in my particular case, it certainly didn't do me any harm. And, and in fact, the opposite, I would say it, it actually did me a lot of good from my own point of view and to see a bit of the world and you know it's put everything in perspective and the other point is uh, I spent four years on a tube train twice a day and I remember thinking there must be more to life than this and now even now when I'm having a bad day I think hang on you could be sitting on a tube train like so many people who it will never be that
0: what if you've you've had a sample you've got your perspective and away you've gone do you think look, i'm I'm wary of putting words in your mouth here, Angus, but do you think it was a little bit easier for people to transition from those jobs outside the bubble into the the industry back then than it is now? There seems to there seems to have been a a narrowing of the funnel into the industry uh, of, of late. Are you observing that in the north as well?
1: I think that's a very good point. I think maybe this sort of intensity of the whole thing. He's he's much stronger now, Gus. Uh, As I say, you know, I am very wary that if it hadn't been for being offered this job, you know, I don't know where I would have got to in the horse business. So it is so much a question of luck and just being in the right place at the right time. But I think probably, yes, I think it, it wasn't quite as intense in those days. And obviously, People didn't travel the world as much as they do now. You know, all the young now have been to America, to Australia, to, or New Zealand, or South Africa. or They've all travelled anyway. Um, so I probably wouldn't have got to look it now if I'd done the, the same career path. <clears throat> but you, I meet people along the way who've been working in other industries and decided they want to get into horses, and occasionally they, you know, they get good jobs. So I would never discourage anybody from doing it. But obviously you can't beat experience and and most people want to get out into the world and and get as much experience in the horse business as they possibly can.
0: Well, let's talk more about your experiences in in the horse world. Uh, Before we get into the Shadwell days, I want to touch very briefly on Sandringham and, and, and working at that operation. Was it different to working for other studs because of the owner or was it just another farm?
1: I wouldn't say it was different, Gus. Uh, I mean, look, I was a student, so I didn't exactly have any sort of bearing on, on policy or how they went about everything day to day. I was just there mucking out, learning, going around with a vet, learning as yeah. much as I possibly could. I was incredibly lucky. Um, there was a lovely man called Michael Oswald, who sadly died last year, who was Her Majesty's stud manager. Uh, And he, I wrote, when I was still in the city, I wrote letters to everybody I could think of in racing. Um, And he took me on, he gave me a chance, said, "Okay, well, you can come here as a student. Um, So I was busy sort of putting my head down, just absorbing as much as I possibly could. So I wouldn't really know, but I don't remember it being any different, obviously, Her Majesty came around once or twice a year, and that was hugely exciting for everybody there. And and obviously her knowledge, uh, it's well known how much she knows and how much she loves the whole breeding business and racing business. Um, So, but I I wouldn't say it was any different. No, I don't think anybody was treated any differently just because it was Sandringham.
0: And for, for those listening that aren't aware we're talking about the Royal Studs at Sandringham, I should have made that clear, for so Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, you, as we know, interviewed with great humility at Shadwell at and got the job. You're 27 years old. All of a sudden you're interacting with the Dick Hearns and the Willie Carsons of the world. Was that a steep learning curve or was it just fake it till you make it for, for a young Angus Gold? it was obviously a
1: steep learning curve just i hadn't had exposure not not just of that quality of horse but obviously the numbers gus and and yeah the intensity plus the travel and and obviously i would never have had any chance of talking to dick Hearn, john Dunlop, barry hills michael jarvis who any of the other great trainers we dealt with um if, if i hadn't been in that job so I always thought part of this job is sort of politics, is getting to know people, getting a rapport, a relationship with them. And I certainly, I hope I was never cocky enough to try and throw my weight around and tell them what they should and shouldn't do. I always saw my job as liaison between the trainers and Sheikh Hamdan. He wanted to know what was going on. He was busy in Dubai. Yes. So I just had to keep him in touch with everything that was happening and And gradually, you know, you start to learn things and 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 learn how different trainers operate. And if I have a small skill, I hope it's sort of getting on with people. And and I've always enjoyed the relationships I had with all these trainers and and getting to know them. As I say, I learned early on there are if we had 15 trainers, there are 15 different ways to train a racehorse, you know. And yeah, some, some work, some don't. But So I was terribly lucky with
0: the people I had to work with. It's almost breeding season. And if you're in the market for breeding stock at the upcoming sales or just want experienced independent support with matings or stallion bookings from a professional held to account by a strict code of ethics, then you want an FBAA agent. For a full list of FBAA members, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and look forward to tomorrow today so green deserts at stud at the nunnery Ufwan was probably early doors uh when when you took on the role and then his younger brother comes along a son of blushing groom named nashwan now what i want to know is were you at the now infamous Nashuan gallop before the 2000 guineas because the way that story has grown in the telling they must have been selling tickets there were that many people who saw this (laughs) mystery gallop and raced to their nearest bookie and got on were you there annoyingly Gus I was not there that day Uh, not only was
1: I not there but I failed to be told about the onslaught the rush down the drive from everybody who was there to get to the bookmakers in those days so i i got sort of third hand later on in the morning from major Hearn, just saying he was very pleased with the horse he wasn't a punting man dick so he would never have got overexcited on that i think willie carson was a bit overexcited and must have told all his punters uh and i have a feeling that lord weinstock might have been there um, watching his horses and and uh he, he apparently told a few of his friends, if it was him, certainly one of Dick's other owners. Um, so, uh, they, as you say, it went into folklore, that gallop, but I know, sadly,
0: I didn't witness it myself. Yes, it went into folklore. He went into the red and then galloped into the history books. I mean, the, the thoroughbred is one of the most documented animals in the world, both through the stud book and the form book. I think... Nashuan as the years go on there's a risk that because he didn't his time form rating isn't up there with some of the the luminaries people won't quite understand what an extraordinary three-year-old season he authored just how special was it to be a part of that Nashuan experience it was remarkable
1: I mean he did something that no horse has ever done before or since um and it's what was amazing it started Gus I was Uh, at the Magic Millions, weirdly, in January. And and Dick Hearn rang me up and said, this horse has popped a splint. Um, And obviously, you know, we knew he was going to be one of our better three-year-olds. Just, sorry, I just stopped myself for one minute. What was rather fascinating, he was a great big immature yearling with a rather plain head and big lumpy knees. He used to, the people in America where he was bred said he used to get up on his knees like a car. Used to stand up that way, and so he was he was plain and gawky. He went through a very plain stage, and I remember in April as a two-year-old going down there, and Major Hearn said to me, "This is the best of them," and we had two or three other nice horses there, including a horse called Alhairib who won a Group One as a two-year-old. Yes, and came uh, and stood, he stood here, here, at Stud side our Sprinter yeah Yeah, yeah. Um, and and he was a beautiful horse and a very good horse, but Dick Hearn said to me in April, "This is the best of them." Po- and pointing at this big blushing groom horse, and I looked at him and I thought he must be talking rubbish. I rem- always remember that, and of course he was spot on. You know, and he just it should taught me a great lesson that a really good horse shows it, however immature they are, whatever they, and a great trainer will be able to pick the signs that say this. You know, here is a good horse. So. Cut to magic millions a year in january the following year and he rang me and said this horse has popped a splint i'm gonna to have to walk him for three weeks so obviously that wasn't a great start he got him back into work but obviously by this stage it was sort of end of march and the, for a guineas at the beginning of may it was touch and go um, so huge thrill to see him come out and win a guineas if i'm right, am i right that he beat dane hill i think yes he did yeah um, and he had, the one thing about this horse, he had the most fantastic stride on him. Um, he was a big horse, but yet, if that makes sense, he was well balanced too. And he had a beautiful, beautiful action. Um, so he went to the derby as hot favourite. And he, I remember seeing him float down to the start, past the stands. They used to come past the stands in the old days. And I remember the Queen watching him because obviously she bred the dam. Yeah, and owned the dam, and she was standing there watching him, and and remarked, Sir Michael told me later what a fantastic action he had. So he came out, won the Derby, and then Sheikh Hamdan said, "Right, we'll train him for the Eclipse," which he duly won. Had a very hard race in doing so, because of the way the race was run, with the Henry Cecil pacemaker for Indian Skimmer going off 100 miles an hour, and suddenly didn't stop, and Willie. Willie will always say that was the, the race that probably bottomed the horse. Uh, he had to, to get had on his bike,
0: there. didn't he? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, he had to really get after him there. Um, but he came out of it in one piece and then went to the King George, back up to a mile and a half. King George at Ascot uh, three weeks later. And he struggled to beat Caco who he'd beaten in the derby. And, uh, you know, so within what was it, four months, three months, he'd, he'd come out and won a guineas, a derby, an eclipse and a King George, which was unprecedented. Um, and obviously you start to think they're unbeatable. So we then shake hands and said he wanted to train him for the arc, not the St. Ledger. Obviously the traditionalists were trying to get him to go to St. Ledger to be a triple crown winner. Um, but he preferred to go down the arc route and they kind of gave him a bit of a break. And took him over to France for a trial in September. And he didn't run much of a race at all. Was ran a rather tired race, if anything, and was third, I think. Um, And uh, so promptly retired, and that was it. But as I said, just to be part of it, it it was massively exciting. You can imagine. Mm. What was I then? 29 or 30 or something. You know, just, just to be up close to a horse as talented as that. Uh it was extraordinary. And if I'd known how rare they were in those days, I probably would have concentrated even more. But it was even you sort of felt like you were being carried along on a tide of excellence. You know, he was a a, a freak of a horse.
0: I mean, it's very easy to think they come along every every year when Deja came along the very next year and he was at the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm mindful of time, so I'm not going to do every single horse, but I have a couple of deja questions for you. Uh, who was faster, Deja or Batash? Charles Hills won't like me saying it.
1: I I doubt I will ever see a classier horse than Deja at his particular metier, which was sprinting. He was just an exceptional horse. I I don't think there's a horse in the world that would ever have beaten him, even though he's great Aussie sprinters. I look, you know, it's hypothetical, but in by our standards, he was. He was the greatest sprinter I've seen in 40 years. So Batash was a very, very fast horse. I just don't think Deja was just blistering
0: speed and carried it and class. And yeah, for me, he was the better horse. And would have matched it, listening to you, it sounds like you think he would have matched it with the Black Caviar, that the that that kind of a, a level?
1: You've got to think so. I mean,
0: yeah. I, 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 you know.
1: How do any of us ever know? And and I was a massive fan of hers, very obviously, and the pleasure of seeing her up close when she came over here, and seeing her a lot in Australia, and you know she was just amazing. Um, so I I would never go and say yes, he would definitely have beaten her, but uh, you know he would have put it up to her. Put it, let's put it that way. He went <laughs> to America and beat the best of them, as you know, bar jumping the shadow. He had had that mare beat. So um, yeah. And, and from an outside draw, everyone said it would be very hard to do.
0: Yeah, he was he was a bit special. If, and if our younger listeners want to see the very definition of a tragedy-beaten YouTube, uh, Dejure's Breeders' Cup, where he jumps that show because he was a tragedy-beaten. Dejure at start is a great mystery to me. He was a brilliant son of Danzig, truly brilliant. Why do you think that Dejure meets with minimal success at start and yet Green Desert? Danehill, Annabar, Warfront. I mean, the list of Danzig short-course horses that are enshrined in, in Bloodstock and will be for years to come, and yet Deja, probably the best of them, isn't at their level. Can you, can you put your finger on a why? If I was that clever, Gus, <laughs> I wouldn't be working
1: for a living. Um, no, I can't, is the answer. I, I can't help wondering... Would he have been better if he'd stood in Europe um, with the mares he'd have got over here as opposed to America? I think Chegg he probably the Americans sort of put a bit of pressure on him after the Breeders' Cup said, stand him here. And, you know, he just maybe he thought with Green Desert already in Europe, he would, he would rather have Deja standing in America. And I don't think that helped him. Certainly, uh, I never thought that was the right—that sounding too clever. I never thought that was the right market for him. Uh, but maybe you know he just—he—he was he wouldn't have been a great success wherever he stood. He was a better mm. broodmare sour, as you know, that he was a sire. But it weird, you know, as you say, all the talent in the world by the greatest stallion around at the time, virtually, and and, uh, and out of a decent mare. But no, he just—he just didn't do it. For
0: Darley Stallions, new in 22 Palace Pier Champion 3-year-old, champion older horse Champion miler, Five Group 1s Kingman's son and heir Plus, the Shamadals are coming Mould-breaking juvenile Pinatubo A three-time Group 1 winner An unbeaten champion 2-year-old And Victor Ladorum Group 1 winner at 2 And classic winner at 3 Inbred to Helen Street The Dam of Street Cry Sire of Winks grandsire of Animo, Dali, setting the shuttle standard. At the same time, Shadwell in Australasia is growing and I want to break this into two bits if I may. What was the strategy for the imports? Because in the space of let's say a dozen years you brought out two cup winners in Jern and Aptalac, two horses of the year in Jern again and Almirad, a Caulfield Cup with Fra, an Australian Cup, and a Sydney Cup with two different sons of Chief's Crown, plus black type horses like Al Shin, and Al Jazz. Who was making the calls on what horses to bring, and what was the criteria? Yeah, it, it
1: started Gus before I was here in the Sentine at Talak the year before I started working. Tom Jones suggested to Sheikh Hamdan that they send this horse to Australia to win the Melbourne Cup, and Sheikh Hamdan didn't know anything about Australian racing asked what the Melbourne Cup was. They told him, cut a long story short, he went down and would you believe he won the Melbourne Cup? I mean, it's sort of, what are the chances of that in the modern world? Um, Jeanne was an interesting one because Jeanne was actually owned by the Macalpine family in England. It was a very hard pulling horse, very talented, but he pulled so hard there was only one man could ride him called Ray Cochrane, and he was trained by Jeff Ragg and the first I knew about it Um, was I was actually driving to Heathrow to get on a plane to come to Melbourne the year before. This zone won the Cup and John Dunlop rang me who trained for the McAlpine family and he said, "Uh, do you think, would you have any interest in this horse? Racing in Dubai was sort of just starting and he said, would you have any interest in this horse? Um, Because he's been sold twice and he's failed the vet both times uh, and the McAlpines don't know what to do with him. And I said, well, I, I, don't know, I, you know, I knew. He was, obviously I knew how good the horse was. Um, and he was rated sort of 124, five or six in time mm-hmm. form. He was a very, very high class horse here, yeah? just so, just very keen, as I said. And so I rang Sheikh Hamdan thinking he would say, okay, let's try him in Dubai. And he said straight away, that is the horse for Australia. See if you can buy him. So we offered a ridiculously low figure and they came back and said, no and we offered a bit more, and, and they said okay. And he'd failed one vet for Godolphin and one to go to America. So, I mean, you know, talk about luck again. That's, if he hadn't failed the vets, we would never have owned him. And and he was a, a hell of a horse in Australia. Um, was extra. he was a good stayer here, but he couldn't go left-handed, weirdly. Yeah. Uh, I remember he, um, as a three-year-old, a man called Brian Rouse rode in at Newbury one day, a mile and free three furlong maiden or something, and he said he had both hands on the left rein, trying to get him round the bend. He was hanging so badly, right. Um, anyway, we, John Dunlop again trained
0: him. We bought him out for the for the red,
1: for the BMW, uh, I guess, you know, whichever it was in those days in Sydney. Yeah, because
0: it was the Tancred International back then, wasn't it? They they were trying so. to to bring internationals so, out, gosh. incentivize it,
1: yeah. And John Dundalk was a great, a great man for international travel and trying new things, and he brought this horse out, and on the Friday, the night before the race, he rang me and he said, you're not going to believe this, this horse has got a leg, he's got a bit of a tendon. And like you can imagine, I'd gone out for it, I'm so excited to be in Sydney, and anyway, that was the end of that dream. So <laughs> I had no idea what to do with him. He said, what do you want to do with him? I said, well, I don't know. I mean, he was, you know, he would have been a best uh, national hunt stallion in Ireland, in Ireland probably, you know, on his form in in England. Um, And I said, look, can we just send him to Lindsay Park and we'll see if anybody has any interest in him in the meantime. I rang up CS and he very kindly said, yes, we'll turn, turn him out here. So that was the end of April. I went back to England, obviously, and in about August, I rang up. CS so yes, one day and we were running through the horses and I had my list in front of me. I remember going through this horse and that horse and then he said, oh, that other horse is going well. And I was looking at the list. I thought, well, I've been through everything. And I said, well, what, what horse is that? And he said, no, well, that pommy horse you sent out that broke down. And I said, well, what do you mean he's going well? He's got a leg. And he went, no, no, I've just got him in light work and he's going all right. And this was literally August and he'd broken down in April. I mean, wow. as I was, I was always told... Uh, uh, a bit of a leg is a, like a little bit pregnant, uh, you know. You you can't have it one way or the other. So, um, anyway, you know, I mean, it's in the history books. What he managed to achieve with that horse, they put a one eyed blinker on him to stop him hanging, and they managed to get him to win. Well, they ended up with a cox plate.
0: Uh, did he win the Underwood? Um, yeah, he won the Underwood. He He authored a very, very successful. Spring and being by Ella Manamoo surging around a Mooney Valley at 2,000 metres was just... Yes, what they managed to do with that horse. How were you communicating with Lindsay Park in those days? I mean, obviously now we're recording this over Zoom and emails (laughs) and WhatsApp and it's it's sort of a lot more straightforward. But what was the, the main method of communication? Well, it wasn't quite smoke signals
1: but he it wasn't carrier fingers. pigeons it <laughs> wasn't no, no, it was telephone but you know you I didn't know the results I didn't know there was no twitter no uh, I used to get the Mondays Australian for years because he gave yes. me all the results um over the weekend and uh you know obviously I'd ring Colin Hayes whenever I could um and subsequently David obviously and then Peter and Tony McAvoy so that's you know it was just pure old-fashioned telephone, um, and they would send us... I, we'd get videos of their races sent every race. We got a video sent over from Australia in those days. Wow.
0: Wonderful. So you referenced that you were at the Magic Millions when you got the call about Nashwan. Would that have been the sale that you bought Maharsan at, the, the Blue Diamond winner the by Biscay? Well, what, well Nash because Nashwan was 89, wasn't it? His
1: winning streak.
0: Yeah. Was she always a racing prospect or were you already at that stage acquiring fillies in order to build up a broodmare band in in the Southern Hemisphere? I don't think
1: there was necessarily a plan
0: to build up a broodmare band at that stage. I think
1: this was Sheikh Hamdan just sort of showing a bit of loyalty to Colin Hayes, saying go out there and try and buy a couple of horses but make sure you buy what Colin Hayes likes. Yeah. Um, And there was quite a funny story, Gus, It, it I think it made the press last year, but just for your list for both of your listeners, I'll just uh all two of them. You. Yeah, I'll just <laughs> tell you quietly. Um, we'd so Colin Hayes had identified this filly and Hubie and I were there. We both liked her. It was my first year, first ever time in Australia. So I was just, I didn't know anybody there. I was following along. Hubie had lived there for four years. He knew half the world as far as I could see. Uh, and I'd never, it was my first journey away with Hubie, really. I was a very bad doer in those days. I ate avocado, vinaigrette and spaghetti bolognese. And Hubie had learned how to live by being in an Australia. And he loved all the seafood and everything. And he loved his wine and I yeah. hardly drank. And we were staying in the Sheraton Mirage. And so we identified this filly and Hubie said, OK, we had our vetted, absolutely fine and we had nothing to do for five hours so he we said come on we'll go back and have lunch at the at the Sheridan Mirage so we went back there and I kept saying to him I mean, you know we must be back in plenty of time and he was much more relaxed and experienced than me he kept saying relax just settle down with plenty of time and he had a bottle of Chardonnay and followed his way through that and I helped him with a glass or two and and uh, I kept saying to him, you know, we mustn't miss this. And he said, look, if you're that worried about it, go and ring up. Anyway, I went and rang the sales company and said, could you tell me what lot number you're on? And they, it was four lots before she came in the ring. And we were still sitting in our board shorts out of the Sheridan Mirage. So I grabbed him by the scrub of the neck. We arrived two lots after she'd been through the ring. And we walked around the corner and C.S. Hayes came up, and said, well done, boys, that was good buying. And I just remember Hubie saying, um, d- could you just give me a minute, boss? And uh, we shot off to the consigners and said, what did you get for that filly? And they said, ah, oh, we didn't sell it. We couldn't get a bid. Uh, so cut a long story short, we managed to buy her cheaper than she'd be led out through the ring. Uh, but it was a, a close run thing. I don't think we ever dared admit to anybody how close we'd come to missing the one that CS really wanted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and I bet I bet CS good.
0: would have killed for for horses that could go as fast as the the <laughs> driver that got you to the sales ground from the Sheridan.
1: <laughs> and he'd have killed us if we hadn't got her. I think, but anyway, we were lucky, and um, she went on to be very good. So then, you know, obviously, then we decided to keep her as a mare, um, and uh, gradually over the year, well, that really didn't come about till later on, because um, we. The numbers dwindled, then, and then when David Hayes came back from Hong Kong, I asked Sheikh Hamdan if he would um, send some fillies down to just set up a little breeding thing there and and sort of try with some of the well-bred fillies that we didn't up here, up in the Northern Hemisphere, that we didn't necessarily want to put into the Brumeau band here. So I think we sent down six fillies, and that's how it started again.
0: It seems as so strategically that the operation sort of it it, it 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 followed its own sort of path. It naturally evolved rather than it was something that you all sat down with a pen and paper and mapped out and and followed a road map. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, hundred percent,
1: hundred percent. You know, the, that wasn't really the Arabs' way of saying this is what we want to achieve. Here's the mm. end goal. Now set about it. You know, we we sort of go to a sale, see if there was something we liked, and speak to Sheik Hamdan, and if he wanted to buy, then we buy, you know. So, and it, it just it took a life of his own, as you say, from there, really.
0: The English Chairman Sale is a night not to be missed. It features a boutique catalogue of 100 race fillies and broodmares, including Daisy Doom, Quantum Mechanic, Shout the Bar and Keysbrook, the Dam of She's Extreme, in-fold to the sire of the moment, Extreme Choice plus Judmont's first-ever Australian consignment of mares, And that's just the catalogue. The Chairman's Sale is also an event. Make sure you're at Riverside Stables at 4.30pm, Friday, May 6th, or you can watch the live stream coverage starting at 4pm at inglis.com.au. Let's talk about a cult, and we, we just talked about a filly that almost got away. This cult... Initially didn't get away, but then he became the big one that got away. Tell me about your first impressions of Zabeel and take me through the process that led him from being a C.S. Hayes-trained, Group 1-winning three-year-old to a Sir Patrick Hogan stallion. Well, I'll
1: tell you what I remember, Gus. Um, Again, he was bought before my time. Um, Colin and Hubie bought him in New Zealand.
0: So you can't Um, even claim
1: that. I certainly can't claim anything to do with him at all, no. And they developed him into the champion he was. And I think I'm right in saying there'd been a few sons of Sir Tristram already at stud, and nothing had really hit the board. And there was a bit of a negative buzz about them, if probably wasn't the word buzz in those days, but the vibe wasn't great. Mm. Um, And we had absolutely nobody showing any interest, really, not for any money. And I remember going to a dispersal sale. It was a one-day sale somewhere north of Sydney, and... I think it was Michael Otto, came up to me and said, "Uh, what are you doing with that Sir Tristram horse? Um, Because uh, I'd have interest in him. Anyway, made an offer. He told me it was for Patrick Hogan. Made an offer. And I talked to CS because obviously he'd said, look, I want to stand this horse. And I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying it was just after he'd completed the buyout of Lindsay Park. Mm -hmm. And he said, "I, I just don't have enough money. I've, I've run out of money and I can't do it. I can't match that offer. So we ended up accepting the offer. I mean, shake You know, we didn't have a stud in Australia. Shake had never shown any huge inclination at that stage to breed. And of course, he didn't know the market and I certainly wasn't cute enough to know the market. So, or, or to know the sort of people I should be talking to really in those early days. Um, so he said, okay, sell the horse. And it was never mentioned until about five years before he died. Sheikh Hamdan suddenly we were chatting away one day, one evening here in Newmarket, and he suddenly turned to me and he said, anyway, it was your fault you made me sell Zabeel. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I with the greatest respect, sir, I didn't have any say at this. You just said you didn't want to stand get rid of the horse. Anyway, it was very funny. He was, he was enjoying having a go at me for
0: that. Um, With the benefit of 25 years for the wound to heal. <laughs> At least. Exactly. Yeah.
1: But uh, No, okay, it was great. I
0: mean, he was, he was
1: in exactly the right place, and I'm also thrilled for Patrick and for Cambridge and for New Zealand breeding. It was a, he was a massive asset to them, obviously.
0: Mm. So you supported At Talack and Jern, or you raced the offspring of Talack and Jern quite a bit, and obviously that's because His Highness... I presume, retained an interest in them when they stood at, at Lindsay Park or Collingrove. Was there ever talk about racing the offspring of Zabil or was it just too uh, t- too soon for his um,
1: No, I mean, we did buy, we bought a few Zabil's, I can't tell you how many off the top mm-hmm. of my head, and we bred um, that Asawiyah family. We bred two or three from that. But look, it was weird for such a successful stallion. All the fillies we had were mad, and the colts we had just didn't want to do it or were useless. So we really didn't have much joy. So, so, well, considering what a huge success he was at stud, Um and I kept the we kept the fillies, obviously, uh to breed from. And even they, surprisingly, as he's a very good broodmas so, they didn't mm. do us any massive favors. But um yeah, we, we just sort of, we didn't get the best out of Zabir, I always felt.
0: Changing gears a little bit. The rise of Godolphin. How did that impact the Shadwell operation, particularly in those early years? Because a horse like Saki, for example, he started life as a Shadwell horse, didn't he? And then ended up as a Godolphin <laughs> horse. As a racing manager... How did you navigate that, what is essentially a family business dynamic?
1: Um, looking back into the memory, um, what happened, I, I think the earliest ones would be we would race them, as you say, like Saki was a homebred from America, went into training with John Dunlop, and actually he stayed until he was a three-year-old. He ran second for us in the Derby, didn't he? To, yeah, Cinder. Gus, but occasionally uh, when Sheikh Maktoum, who was then the ruler, the eldest brother, was alive and Sheikh Mohammed set up Godolphin uh, and if there was a particular two-year-old that we had that looked good, sometimes Sheikh Maktoum would say to Sheikh Hamdan, send it to Godolphin, we would like that horse next year. Um, So that's how we started and and a few of the two-year-olds would go at the end of their two-year-old year um, with varying degrees of success. I don't think um, we ever had a champion. Then Sheikh Hamdan started allocating yearlings to Saeed bin Suroor, just like a normal trainer would send him 10 or 15 yearlings, whatever. Um, and I think that's how Al Muta came along who won the Dubai World Cup. But Saki was the he was obviously the best of them. He turned into an absolute world class four-year-old and was incredibly impressive in the arc, as you know, and the Judmond International. And then he came back to stand, you know, he was still Sheikh Hamlin's horse, technically. Yeah. He ran in the name of Godolphin, um, but
0: he came back to stand for us at the end of his racing days. Enjoying the podcast? There's so much more to uncover when you subscribe to the TDN OZNZ Daily Edition. Sales reports, industry insights and interviews, race results with actual pedigree insight, even trivia. Go to tdnoznz.com.au and subscribe now. People listen to this and think, well, gosh, Angus Gold's got it Got it pretty easy. He's been the, in his fourth decade as the uh, racing manager for a Middle Eastern potentate who loves his racing and is incredibly knowledgeable. But how do you marshal a global racing enterprise like Shadwell. I mean, by 2010-ish, you had Europe, America, Australia, and South Africa was on the horizon. When do you sleep? <laughs> Look, very obviously, I loved
1: my job. I lived for it, as, as various people would attest to and tell you, that um, you know, probably too much. But... It's easy to get caught up in it. You know, my my role was just to report to Sheikh and I was his eyes and ears, and I did what I was told by him. You know, people never really got to grips. You know, as you say, how did you marshal it? I could only do what he would allow me to do. He made every call. He wow. vetted every mating for 200 and something mayors. He did all the yearling allocations for 230 yearlings, he, did it, he was involved every step of the way, so I could only, it wasn't like I would suddenly move a horse from one trainer to another or ship a horse to Australia or to South Africa at a whim. You know, I had to get everything, had to go through Sheikh Hamdan, and he was very much hands-on, which I thought, personally, I love the fact that he was so hands-on because, you know, he, he was so passionate about it, and... I was just lucky to have him as involved as he was. I mean, he, I don't know how he had the time, let alone me, you know, he because he had a full-time job as Minister of Finance and heavily involved in the politics in the Gulf. And yet he would, you know, he used to get sent videos by the stud managers in America, Ireland, of all the yearlings, all the foals, and he would get, he said to me once, I asked him when he managed to watch them, and he said he'd get home at, 11.30, midnight, and he'd just go and sit and watch. It was his relaxation. He was looking at the videos of his horses, and he had this extraordinary photographic memory. I remember standing in John Gosden's yard once in March as a two-year-old, and, and a horse came round the corner. You know, it was just a, another bay horse, and he hadn't seen the earlings since July of the year before, and he said, my goodness, this horse has improved, even before John Gosden said which horse it was. And I was looking at my list, trying to work out which horse it was. And I thought, you know, you're you're definitely trying this on. You you don't know which horse you're talking about. And on he went. He said to John, you know, I remember this horse last year. He was so backward. And, and of course, he got him straight away. And and he could do it with his camels as well. They they just recognised them straight away. About three years ago here, we were looking at a yearling new market here. And he looked at it and he turned and walked back to me and he said, you know what this horse reminds me of? He is exactly like Erhob, who was by that stage 20 years before. Yeah. You know, and, and those sort of things, they, he he just remembered. So it was extraordinary. So he was very much hands on. Yeah, look, it took a lot of work and a lot of time to keep, you know, on the television Australia early in the morning. South Africa was much easier. And obviously then we had 400 and something horses in Europe. So, you know, we we had a lot of horses here to keep on top of. America, I didn't have so much to do with in the last few years. Um, That was done from America, but, but time consuming, it was great fun.
0: We're a little over 12 months on from his passing. Can I ask you to reflect with the benefit of that perspective on how you processed his passing at the time? Funny enough,
1: Gus. It, it is a good question because I'd spoken to him three weeks before and asked him how he was. And he said better, much better and sounded much stronger. And I, so I was quite buoyed by that. And I thought that's fantastic. And, you know, and obviously, subsequently, things didn't work out, sadly. Um, but I think so. I'm not going to say it was such a shock. He'd been ill for six months, but it was a big shock. But equally, it was March the 24th or 5th, and the season was starting that time. So we had to just put our heads down. We had 450-odd horses in training. We had to put our heads down and just work our way through that. Um, and we had no communication with the family for about three or four months while they were obviously mourning and trying to come to terms with it themselves. So... So we just got on with the everyday stuff, and and which was a pretty much a full time occupation. So I d- really didn't have time to think about it too much. It's only, funny enough, with the benefit of this winter under my back, we've dispersed. You know, we've sold so many horses, we've reduced a much smaller operation, and and now I've had time to reflect and. And, and obviously, you know, this has been my sort of mourning period, for want of a better expression, you know, I've missed him much more in the last few months than I ever did last year, because we were just chasing our tail, trying to keep the show on the road. Um, but uh, obviously now, you know, I, I look for 25 odd years, I rang him just about every day of my life, you know. And so obviously you develop a close relationship um, and I always said I, I miss I miss my daily conversations. I miss my nightly bollockings. I miss uh, when I did something wrong or ran a horse that shouldn't have run somewhere. Um, but he was so involved and so passionate. And and you know I always think you can't ask more than that in a boss to have. I would much rather that than somebody who was just very rich but was, if you like, an absentee landlord who just wanted to turn up for the big days. You know he wasn't that at all. Um, it's been well documented. They they are amazing in defeat. Um, certainly, the Maktoum family, anyway, and I'm sure the whole, whole um, all that area of the Gulf. They they take defeat so well. Sheikh Hamdan was a very religious man. If I had to ring him with terrible news, you know, a horse had broken a leg or something, he he would say, "That is the will of Allah. There's nothing we can do about it." Mm. You know, the worst The worst thing that happened in my time was managing to sell McAfee as an unraced two-year-old. Marcus Drogonig had said to me, look, I haven't really been able to train him properly because he's had niggling little problems, but I think he probably, he'll win a maiden. And it was early days of Dubai, And so we didn't know what he was at that stage. Hamdan had told me to sell a whole lot of horses because it was costing so much to keep him in training. And so I made the decision to sell this horse. And because I was in Sydney at the sales when he won his trial in France. And I had to come back to England and say, sir, I a horrible feeling. I may have sold a very good horse of yours. And we talked about it and he said, well, you know, never mind. And anyway, then he was sitting here the day he won the Guineas, and I had to walk into the box with probably 35 Arabs in the box all looking at me. And I, you can imagine I felt about six inches high, and I went up and I said, sir, I, I don't know what to say. I'm unbelievably sorry. And he just said, forget about it. We had no luck with this horse. And that was it. And I went to him at the end of the year. Um, I felt so bad about it. I went to him in in uh, beach house. He stood here and said, sir, look, this was entirely my mistake. And, you know, if you would like me to resign, I quite understand. And he got very angry. He said, "Agus, I told you we had no luck with this horse. Now just move on." And that was the way they were. Um, everything happened for a reason, as I say, it was the will of Allah. And he—it was never mentioned again. And that's why he was so wonderful to work for. You know, he was—he just took took the rough and smooth, um, and obviously enjoyed the good moments quietly. As you know, he wasn't a man of any huge emotions, but. He would feel, you know, you can tell when he was really happy inside and proud of one, but they took the defeats equally as well.
0: Do you see similarities in Sheikah Hissa now that she's sort of stepped into the role as steward of this, this operation?
1: I certainly do. Um, I certainly do, Gus. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's fast, you know, she's young, she's, uh, but she's completely passionate. Um, I didn't know because I'd never met her until after Sheikh Hamdan died. She used to sort of sit with him in the evenings. So she, a couple of times she said to me, yes, I remember you talking to my father about this, or I was with my father when you talked to him. And of course, we never knew that. I, I never knew in those days. So while she doesn't have the experience of of racing that he had, obviously, and she herself would say she doesn't have his knowledge, but she absolutely loves it. She has horses of her own. She rides. So you know, the the for me the 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 whole point with Sheikh Hamdan and his brothers and that generation, they grew up with the horses with the camels. Mm -hmm. That was what they knew. And that's why it was in their heart, in their head, because they, you know, they, they were still in, around in the days when they needed them to survive, let alone as a, as a hobby. Um, whereas the next generation, obviously, they haven't grown up with, with that d- sort of stage of the horses and camels and what have you. They've had other things to deal with. But Sheikahessa definitely has it in her heart and she was incredibly close to her father. He was a huge family man. I think all his children were very close to him, but she really wants to carry on his legacy. Obviously, they couldn't afford to do it at the level it was being done at, and quite understandably, you know, it was it was vast, um, so we brought it down to what we hope is a more manageable level. She's just been to America to see Malafat and have a look at the stud there and, and she's fascinating some of the things she says about the horses and it's just like listening to him it's, it's very yeah. interesting but again you know I speak to her every time we have a runner I talk to her try not to bother her too much but but she'll be on the telephone um, I went to ask her two days ago and she rang me before I got back to the car to ask about the two runners there wants to know exactly and she she'll ring the jockeys directly she's developing relationships with the trainers. Yeah look it's it's fantastic to have that much enthusiasm emanating and and with all the team you know that we can see somebody is still as passionate as she is. Um so obviously we we want to do the best we can for her and the family and quite what the future is long term obviously only they can say that but if her enthusiasm and and you know enjoyment of the whole thing is anything to go by and particularly the breeding she's massively keen on the stud operation and she said the first time i met her she said you know my father adored his breeding and i want to carry that's what i want to carry on is the stud is the most important thing so hopefully we'll be we'll still be here for a few years yet
0: she's obviously the perfect person to take up the flame, if you like. I've got to ask you this, though, Angus. How close was Shadwell to oblivion before she stepped into the breach, do you think?
1: I don't think it ever got anywhere near there. Uh, I mean, as I said, we had a period of nobody knowing after he died uh, and, and no communication. The I mean, family, I think they were trying to sort out what to do in their own minds, let alone us. So... In my mind, it never came close to that. Obviously, then in September, we were told we had to reduce the numbers dramatically. um, And it went into free fall for a little bit at that stage. Um, But I, I, you know, by then I had already met her and she'd said, I want to carry on his legacy and the studs are important. So obviously, all these things have to be funded. So it's a question of what level the, the family are prepared to fund it at going forward. But I don't think it ever got to the stage of um,
0: disappearing completely. A thought experiment for you. I know all horses need to be assessed on their individual merits, but let's do a sweeping generalisation. What does Angus Gold's ideal yearling look like? Do you have a type? And We could do one for the Northern Hemisphere and one for the Southern Hemisphere if that makes it easier. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point because... They are different,
1: in my opinion. It took me a long time to work that out, a lot of years. Right. Uh, And probably a lot of Shake Hamdan's money to get it right. But um, (laughs) I remember arriving at Lindsay Park the first time I ever went there and looking at the two-year-olds that they'd bought the year before as yearlings. And they were like, to me at that stage, in my eye, they were like our four-year-olds. I'd never seen Horses with development like that, with muscle like that, big powerful things. I don't think I'm being rude by saying in those days, that a lot of them could be very plain, great big feet on them, huge bone, all the sort of. I remember Rory looking at Rory's jester after Rory's jester, thinking, "How can this be a good stallion when they look at? They look like me on a bad day, big plain <laughs> heads on them." And uh, but that's how they ran, you know, and, and you learn. CS said to me long, long ago, he said, you know, we can't compete with the Europeans bred horses from a mile upwards. We don't have them. But he said, I defy any horse to run faster than 55 seconds up the straight at Flemington, you know, and that's why. I must temper what I say about Deja or beating the locals. But, you know, I learned early on in Australia, you can have a very different shape and size of a horse or certainly shape Um, they didn't have the quality of Europeans, stroke Americans. With the the advent of the shuttle stallion, I think that's changed a little bit, actually, now, personally. Um, They're not all those big, buff-headed things with 10-inch bone and huge soup plate feet. You know, there's a much finer type of horse now in Australia, as well as the big, powerful things. But, I mean, anyone will tell you who knows me, Gus. For me obviously head and eye, vitally important. Um, You know, I don't like to see a little piggy eye and the character of the horse is so important. I'm a bit of a stickler for a a walker as much as possible, you know, because to me, the only way as a yearling, the only way you can judge a horse is to see if it looks athletic enough. If it can't walk, how can you tell if it's an athlete? Uh, Having said that, obviously you have to bring in the pedigree then because if a lot of the sprinters, as you know, they just shuffle along, they don't Mm. really use themselves. That's why they're quick. But if, if a horse is by Zabil out of a staying mare and it can't walk, I wouldn't touch it, you know, because it, it, it chances are it's not going to be athletic enough if it's, buy a sprinter out of a fast bred man, it just shuffles. Well, then you'd, you'd forgive that sort of thing. But I like it. Look, I, you know, I like what everybody else likes. I like a good-sized horse, as I say, with a good attitude and one that looks like he's an athlete. You learn to forgive certain faults. And it's, that's what's been fascinating to me, working with so many trainers over the years. Some trainers won't have one thing. Some trainers won't have another. Some trainers don't give a damn, you know, Somebody like Mark Johnston here buys some amazing horses to me, but he wins races with them and he works a different system to anybody else. So there's no right or wrong. That's one of the first things I ever learned. The minute you start generalizing, you'll get it wrong um, and you have to take everyone on their merits. But on the whole, you know, as I say, demeanor, attitude is is incredibly important. and And at that stage of a horse's life, there's nothing more stressful
0: than a yearling sale. So how uh, they behave, the sales is is absolutely vital. Are you a catalogue first guy or an individual first? Will you have a good look at the pedigree before you get the yearling out or you wait to see the, the horse itself? I'm a,
1: a bit anal about that. I, I'd like to see the individual, you know, however well-bred it is. If it looks like it can't move or it's got no scope or it's got a bad attitude, uh, you know, I wouldn't touch it if it's the best-bred horse in the book because, you know, that's the challenge to me is uh, trying to come up with a physical type. I like to see them on the ground as much as I do and then the pedigree comes into play, what trips are you going to get, how much you're going to have to pay for it, all those sort of things.
0: Let's move from young horses to young people. You've worked with plenty of up-and-comers over the years. I think we can agree that talent has no single point of origin. But is there a country that you're observing at the moment as a whole is producing a an array of of young talent that has surprised you? I mean, we alluded to it briefly earlier.
1: I think with the advent of travel, international travel, you know, it has lifted the standard around the world so much. For example, without knocking them too much in my early days, I would say the French were definitely behind and they didn't tend to travel as much as the Irish or, or even the English. Um, and you really noticed it. They had, you know, just to, just to generalise, which I don't like doing, but they used to have small feet, the French horses. And, and I think by in the last 25 years, all the young French have now joined in travelling to Australia, to America, South Africa, just like everybody else has. And they've, It's changed the standard of their yearlings dramatically to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the only thing I would say to anybody young, keen on this business is travel, travel, travel. Get as much experience in different places as you can, because it's fascinating to see how many different ways there are to do this business. And everywhere you go, obviously, you pick up little snippets that, you know, might help you down the line wherever you end up in the world. And for obvious reasons, people in Australia do things very differently to people in Europe or America. So, But, you know, it's, it's a question of seeing all these methods and then deciding what you like the best, what's going to work in wherever you are in, in your particular area.
0: All right. Last two segments, our quick fire, would you rather? So I'm going to give you a couple of binary options and you can, you can choose your favourite and then we'll finish with our final question. You're up for that? Yep. Melbourne Cup or the Everest? Melbourne Cup. Dane Hill or Zabeel?
1: I'll have to say Dane Hill.
0: Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere? Uh, Look, I love my...
1: Obviously, I work in the Northern Hemisphere and I love European racing and that's what I've grown up with and done for 40 years. But I'm a passionate... Uh, a lover of Australian Australian racing, as anybody will tell you down there. So, yeah, I'd better say Northern, I suppose,
0: just because that's where I work. But my heart is in the Southern Hemisphere. I think I know the answer to this next one based on a bit of my research, but uh, beer or wine? <laughs> I don't drink beer. <laughs> there we go. Phillies or cults?
1: a very good question i think i've probably certainly in australia i've had more success with phillies than colts um whether that's um, obviously the last few years coming up against all the syndicates buying the colts has made it difficult um but uh uh, yeah i'll go phillies
0: on the subject salsa bill or Tagruda. Salisbury, Epsom, Flemington or Saratoga? Flemington. Ooh. And final one, top lot or winner's circle? Oh, winner's circle. That's ultimately why we're all here, right? If you were to be put in charge of racing in Australia, what would you do on your first day?
1: I'm going to say... What I imagine everybody else says, Gus, is just bring everybody together and try and get them to work. I know it's a big country geographically, but it's a small country in racing terms, international racing terms. And I, I just can't see, and I'm, maybe I'm against the trend here, I can't see that one state trying to outdo the other can be of any benefit to racing in the country as a whole. You know, for me, everybody has to work together for the benefit of racing and stop egos and petty squabbles getting in the way of it. Um, that, that may be unfair. And I'm, you know, I'm not close enough to the politics, but uh, having been to however many Flemington carnivals and, and now seeing the way. New South Wales are trying to sort of it just doesn't come across to the rest of the world as a very joined up way of doing things you know I would love to see everyone working in harmony I know John uh, John Massara has had to wave the white flag and if he can't do it you you worry about the, the you know how anybody can pull them together and maybe I'm wrong I don't know the politics as I say well enough maybe that's not as important as it looks to me but he just there is so much wonderful about racing in Australia. You have so much right. and And to me, I think that that isn't necessarily right. But obviously, trainers are going to tell me differently because when they have enough prize money to go for in the in the Everest, and goodness knows what, that's all they care about um and owners. So you know I, maybe that's an old-fashioned view, but I would love to see everybody
0: singing from the same same hymn sheet. Well, it's a very small electorate, the Connections Cast electorate, but I think uh, I think you'd find there's plenty of accord among participants down here as well. Angus Gold, absolute pleasure having you on Connections Cast uh, this week. Good luck with the flat season 2022, and hopefully we can see you down here in the not too distant future. Well, that'll be great, Gus. I hope to get back.
1: Yeah, be lovely to come back and see some nice people and nice horses and maybe drink the old
0: glass of wine. Good on you, good on you, thanks Angus. Thank you for joining me on TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, brought to you by Newgate, raising top class racehorses. If this is the first time you have listened and you enjoyed our chat with Angus, catch up on our interviews with other successful judges, including Suman Hedge, Justin Bayon, and Paul Moroni. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and recommend us to friends and, of course, subscribe to TDN OZNZ's Daily Edition for the best thoroughbred news and information in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening.